Well, hey, good morning. How's everybody out there this morning? All right, feeling good? Yeah, good. I, I hear some claps. You guys are awake. You're ready to go. Well, hey, we're diving back into this series that we have been camped out in here for the last several uh, weeks called Tell Me a Story. It's all about the parables of Jesus. And so we're going to jump into another story of Jesus. But before that, I know I like to tell stories about my kids, but there's just material coming on the regular. And I just feel like I got to share these stories with people because they're good and they're fun. And uh, usually, like, they're amusing uh, to me and both, uh, and I'm involved in these moments that I don't normally would not be caught up in uh, because my kids are fun. And uh, so <laughs> we, a few weeks ago, were down um, throwing rocks in the creek, which is one of our favorite pastimes. We go down to the Little Miami River, and we just throw rocks. I mean, for hours, Jess always comments, like, how can you guys be amused with throwing rocks in this way? For so, like, just try it. Like, just it's, it's a good time, and we're skipping, and we're throwing, and occasionally want to go whizzing by my head because, you know, there's little kids throwing from behind me. I'm like, make sure you're standing in front of me, please, when you throw the rocks. And so I've gotten hit by a few. Um, but it's a good time. And um, as we're, like, hanging out there, you know, I'm sort of like, I'm extroverted, but Aiden is, like, ultra extroverted. And so he talks to people that I don't necessarily, like, would not have engaged with, you know, priors. I'm just like, I, you know, I'm just here throwing rocks. Like, but everybody that comes down the bank, like, hey, how you doing? You know, hey, you know, like your shirt. Like, he's, like, connecting with everybody. And so um, this is always fun for me because I never know, like, what he's going to say and uh, what moment that's going to create. And so uh, – one guy's walking down the beach who just got wrapped up fishing, and probably we had sort of rained on his parade because we were just dropping rocks. In the, so he's probably like, oh, fine, you know, like I'm out. And so he packs up his stuff. He's walking quite a distance from us, and he pulls out a cigarette, and he lights it up. And, um, you know, Aiden just says what pops into his head. And uh, so all of a sudden, from like a distance, he, cry, he yells out, hey, you shouldn't smoke. <laughs> like, so I'm like, immediately, like, whose kid is this? Like, I, don't, I don't know who he goes with. I'm looking for his parents. You know, shh, you know, be quiet, you know. And so he, like, calls out this guy. And the look on the guy's face was like, it was such an awkward moment because he didn't laugh at all. He was like, like, he was disgusted. Like, who does this kid think that he is? I mean, he called him out. Like, he straight up called him out. And so I had to have a conversation with my son after that. I just pulled him aside. I said, listen, you're not wrong. It's not good for him. But it's not your place. Like, it's not your place. You know, it's like, I don't get it. Like, I'm just trying to help. You know, it's like, it's not your place. You know, like, and that was exactly the guy's point. He didn't say anything, but he just kind of, like, huffed off with his fishing supplies. Like, hey, sorry, you know, Jesus loves you. You know, I was like, see you later. Um, but uh, the look was, like, who does this kid think that he is, right? Who does this kid think that he is that he could tell me that I shouldn't smoke, right? And uh, I, was, I, I tended to agree with him in that moment uh, that he probably shouldn't have said anything. Um, and I think kind of as we're, we're talking today about a parable that Jesus told, I think sometimes we get caught into this thinking about Jesus that is sort of one-sided thinking. And I think that sometimes we have this picture of who Jesus was that was sort of like the, sun, the, the pictures that are hanging in like a Sunday school classroom where Jesus is all nicely kept and he's got this nice robe around his waist and his hair is like flowing and he's got his sandals. And there's usually like a sheep 
couple little sheep by him, and he's just so delicate with the sheep, and there's children running and butterflies. And, and, and we sort of get, make this impression then about Jesus that Jesus was like, it's just, he's just everywhere he goes, he's just like there's butterflies floating around him. And he, he never was like picking a fight anywhere that he goes. And he's like, you know, he never will want to like, you know, hurt anyone's feelings or anything. And so we start to sort of formulate this view of Jesus that I don't think is the same view of Jesus that I, I read about in the Gospels because um, there's certainly this side of Jesus that is, you know, drawing to people in love. And I'm not contesting that, but there's also this side of Jesus that he was not scared of controversy. In fact, there was a lot of controversy surrounding Jesus, and there was a lot of conflict that arose because of conversations and exchanges with Jesus, and he certainly was not afraid of confrontation, right? And so there is this Jesus, too, that is this force to be reckoned with as well, and so, you know, I think we have to sort of widen our view of who Jesus was. And as we talk about that, I, I have to set you up with that because that's the Jesus you're about to see uh, in, in these next couple moments as we talk today. And really it's this Jesus that was willing to call out things that were not in line with the will of God, that were, that were off base, especially when it was righteous people that were carrying out these things. Jesus was quick to condemn and quick to call out the things that those that claimed to follow God um, and, really the, and really cared about the things of God uh, were, were doing that were not aligned with that. And so Jesus would have no problem calling that out. And one of the the groups that he ran into over and over again that tensions were continuing to ratchet up with uh, were the religious rulers of the day. Really, the religious establishment of the day was the one that Jesus was constantly, it wasn't the sinners, right? It wasn't those that were just completely rejecting God that were, it was those that claimed to follow the things of God that did not actually live out the things of God, that he was constantly butting heads, and he had no problem calling them out and confronting those things. And so the story that we're going to hear today is really this epic call out of the religious establishment uh, in this moment that they had with Jesus. Prior to that, we see this story that unfolds where Jesus goes into, and maybe you heard this, this is not, by the way, the pictures that we have hanging in our uh, Sunday school classrooms is Jesus in the temple. Right, Because this is that other side of Jesus that he is upset about something, he's ready to confront something, and, and that he is a force to be reckoned with when he steps into the temple. And what's happening is there's all these unauthorized things happening, um, and these things that are displeasing to God. And a lot of the religious leaders are using the temple and the temple system for personal gain. They're overcharging for sacrifices and things like that. So they're making it this means for profit. And so Jesus just goes in there and you can picture this picture of Jesus turning over tables and driving out with whips the religious leaders and those that were uh, carrying out these things and so this is not the picture that we have hanging in our Sunday school classroom right but it is who Jesus is and it's a, a Jesus who is not afraid to stand up in the name of justice and so uh, so we see this and so as he does this of course they're not so happy about being called out right and so the tension continues to ratchet up between Jesus and the religious leaders. And they come to him at a moment when he's teaching, and they sort of interrupt his message to say this to him. They say, and they entered the te te temple, the chief priests and the elders of the, of the people came up to him as he was teaching. They said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? 
In other words, who do you think that you are talking to us this way? Who do you think you are treating us this way? What authority do you have? It's the wrong person to ask that question to. And what he begins, rather than simply answering the question, he tells a parable, as he often does. And so he tells this story that we're about to dig into uh, here in just a little bit. And as we read this parable, I want you to think about that this parable has a specific audience, right? It's a specific target, but in a more, in a wider way, there's principles that apply to us as those who have been entrusted with the things of God in our time, okay? So uh, let's look at that parable, and we're in verse 21, and we're going to start. So Matthew 21, starting in verse 33, I'm going to read that parable to you. It says this, and Jesus had already told a couple parables after the, his authority was challenged, and so then he tells another one. It says, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get the fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and we can have his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. So they said that. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable... They wisely perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Though they wanted to respond, they feared him because he was a force to be reckoned with. And they knew that, they perceived wisely that he was speaking about them. And so some things just as we get started here into this parable that we have to be aware of. There's some key uh, things going on here, some key players. The first is the vineyard owner. And the vineyard owner in this parallel is the main character of all of these stories, and that is God. So God is the vineyard owner. So the vineyard owner entrusts his field, which is really the kingdom or the gospel or the message of God, the things of God, to the tenants. And those tenants would have been, in the Old Testament, that the kingdom was entrusted to the nation of Israel, became the channel through which God would work and his goodness would flow. And so the tenants in the Old Testament were the nation of Israel, which really culminated to this religious system that the Pharisees and the teachers of law uh, were at the head of. And so uh, the tenants really were, in this parable, it was the Pharisees and the teachers of law that he was speaking about. Um, and then the servants were the messengers of God that were sent to uh, the nation of Israel or uh, the, the people of God to bring the message of God. And they ultimately rejected over and over again these people. And then the son we see here, does anybody know who the son is? Jesus. Okay, good. We're just following. It's okay to answer that. That's, that's the right answer. It's like, wait, maybe it's a trick. I don't know. I don't want to step into it. 
And so Jesus is actually prophetically speaking about himself here, and he's doing the ultimate call out through the vehicle of story, which is, it just amuses me that Jesus like uses story to like, he could have just like blatantly, and other times he did call them out, but instead they ask the question, well, by what authority do you do these things? And he's like, let me tell you a story. And then he sort of backs them into uh, this moment where they realize, wait, he just totally called us out, you know, and, and here we are. So here's three ways that he calls uh, out the Pharisees. But again, as we think about this, the tenants, who would be the tenants following the Pharisees and really now in our day? I think we could argue that that's those that God has entrusted with the kingdom today, which is the people of God, which is the church, which is why these principles matter to us too as we think about them here and now. And so here's the charges that were first offered to them that I think we have to consider as the people of God in our time. Charge number one is this. You approach God with hostility instead of humility. And so there's like, I don't know if you guys can see it, but there's like some bug that's flying around. I promise it's happening. Um, It says that when the season uh, for fruit drew near, he sent the servants, right, to the tenants. And what did they do to those servants? They beat one, they killed another, they stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. And so there's this obvious hostility that exists between the tenants, those that were entrusted with the things of God, and the messengers of God. And there's this resistance happening And it really is, and Jesus describes it descriptively as this blatant hostility toward God. And so you approach God with hostility instead of humility, and this is what he's pointing out through this parable. But this trend was happening all throughout history. You'd see a prophet step in and speak the things of God only to be met with hostility. And I think the reason is, and we very clearly see through the entire biblical story, that that's because we're rebellious by nature. We actually, in our human nature, resist the things of God. We push God away in hostility. And so we have to be aware of that these same things that he's calling out in the Pharisees live in us. By nature, we operate in hostility toward God. We push God away. And so we see this trend happening all throughout history. Jesus recounts it, how they treated the prophets. And then God says, and we know, we can see this story unfolding even as we read it, right? Then I will send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. And we're all sitting there like, no, don't send your son. Because we know what's going to happen to the son. The same thing that happened to the servants is going to happen to the son. And sure enough, they don't respect the son. So they say, we're going to take his inheritance. We're going to kill him and cast him out and kill him as well. And that's what they do. And Jesus is actually speaking prophetically here about what's about to happen. As things continue to ratchet up, as this hostility continues to grow, they will do the very thing that Jesus is telling them is about to happen, that they're going to reject the Son of God. There's three reasons, according to J. Warner Wallace, why someone might be hostile to a truth claim or hostile to God in some way. And he's a cold case detective. He's written some great books, a lot that I recommend to people. And uh, he kind of speaks through this cold case detective kind of lens. And so he uses, he, he kind of helps to explain things, I think, in a way that's really tangible. And he says one of the reasons why people might reject something as true is there's three reasons. Uh, or reject uh, someone is there's a rational reason for it. Uh, number one, we might reject the truth claim because it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. So we're like, no, forget that. That doesn't, that doesn't really, uh, uh, you know, that doesn't equate for us. It doesn't make sense. Uh, the evidence isn't there to support that truth claim, so rationally we dismiss it, right? 
said, so his point is, and there's two other ones, but his point is that the majority of rejection of God does not exist in that category. It's not a rational, like we're thinking about, okay, yeah, let me look at the evidence for the resurrection, and now, like, now it doesn't add up, doesn't equate. The evidence traces uh, in in a very clear direction. The second two categories is the categories he says most people uh, dismiss God, reject God, or show hostility toward God. The second is an emotional reason. And the emotional reason might be, okay, I've encountered somebody that has claimed to represent Jesus, and they misrepresented him, and now I equate them to be what Jesus was. And so emotionally, I reject the person of Jesus. Even if it's not all accurate, it's this emotional reason for rejecting Jesus. Or maybe something difficult happened in your story, and you're like, you just feel this hostility building toward God because he didn't answer a prayer in a way that you would have had him answer a prayer or you felt uh, abandoned in some way. So these are emotional reasons that often people push away from God. They have some sort of emotional reason. The third is, and this is the one that he talks about as most common, is there's a volitional reason that we are hostile toward God. In other words, in, in, in our will, we just don't want to accept the things of God. We don't want it because we don't want somebody else outside of of us to have authority over our lives. And so as humans, we often volitionally reject and show hostility toward God. And I think this is helpful for me to think about the stubborn tendencies that we often have uh, toward God. No, 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 you guys are stubborn. I'm definitely, you know, I'm a little bit stubborn. I can be stubborn. And we're born stubborn against God. One of the words that was often used to describe the stubbornness of will in the Old Testament, if you want some just Old Testament trash talk, you know, to use on your friends, like here, here's a good word that they used all the time in the Old Testament. It's not what you wanted to be called. And it was the word stiff-necked. You ever heard this word stiff-necked? Like that's a good one to use, you know, like if somebody's being stubborn, be like, you're, you're just stiff-necked. You don't want to hear nothing, bro. Like I, I don't know what to tell you, but you're just, you're a stiff-necked, stubborn individual. And nobody likes, wants to be called that, right? But we see this being pointed out about people as they're resistant toward God. And the idea was that, you know, back in, in the Old Testament day and the New Testament day, uh, oxes were a lot of times used as transport vehicles. They would transport these carts. And some oxes just weren't having it when they got put in that yoke. And so they would just stiffen up their neck. They're like, no, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. Like, I'm not going the way you want me to go. And so they would, they would have this experience. And they're like, oh, I know what he's talking about when he's calling us stiff neck. He's ca- calling us stubborn as an ox, right? We're, st- we're too stubborn. And so this was uh, this refusing to be steered uh, in, in any specific direction. And this was the language that was often used for people as they opposed God. And the apostle Stephen, later, after what Jesus said was going to happen, which was he was going to be killed, he was going to be handed over, um, and we know that he, he raised to new life, giving us uh, the opportunity to have a relationship with God. After all that happened, then, there was still this gospel being proclaimed about what had just happened with Jesus to even the religious leaders, and there was this ongoing resistance and hostility still happening as the church was uh, being built in the book of Acts. And so this guy named Stephen... He preached this message that was one of the most compelling messages you could read, but it was not a seeker-sensitive kind of a message. And at the end of it, this is kind of his closing remarks. He uses this language. He says, you stiff-necked people. Okay? And not usually you try to win over your audience, but let me just put it. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but you have not obeyed it. 
you have not obeyed it, you have not followed through on what God gave you. And so you're a stiff-necked group of people. And there's really only two realities when it comes to our relationship with God. Either we're growing closer to God, or there's greater distance between us and God. There's really not middle ground. Either we're developing more hostility within us and in our heart, and because of that we're gravitating away from God, we're pushing God away, or on the other side of that, we're developing greater humility and softness of heart that is welcoming God closer. James 4, 8 says, come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. The way we move closer to God is through humility. Acknowledging our own inner hostility and taking on humility. Charge number two, Jesus, through story form, uh, calls them out on is, and we see this happen in the story. It says, um, when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. The second thing that happens is they want the inheritance more than they want the son. They want God's stuff more than they want God's son. And even as I say that, I have to check myself and think, man, how, how much is my relationship with God just based on the stuff that he can bring my way, what he can do for me? Is God just like this genie in a bottle? If I just wish upon that, that Jesus genie, all of a sudden he can make all my dreams come true? Or is it really about this relationship that I have with him? And the law at the time provided that uh, if there were no heirs, then the property would pass to those in possession. And so... Possession is, as you hear, nine-tenths of the law. Um, and so they were saying, hey, if we just kill, there's no heir, we can take his stuff. We can take his inheritance. And I think often that is our desires. We, we love the things of God, but do we actually want the authority of Jesus in our life? Do we actually want the relationship with God? We, uh, every Sunday, it seems like as we head out of here, we accumulate a greater bounty of, like, treasures and treats and things for our kids. Like, our kids, I think they're gaming a lot of you guys. Like, y'all are so sweet to them. And there's, like, like last week I took a picture and there was, like, was like this tall of, like, snacks on the seat of, like, things that they've received. And Aiden, like, he's so easy. Like, he just loves everybody that, like, you know, right off the bat. Like, he's so easy. Eli, though, he's the harder one to win over. And, in fact, he a lot of times, like, will be walking in someplace and somebody's like, oh, hi, Eli, how you doing? And he just goes, like, I'm not having it. I, I'm not even going to uh, pretend that I want to talk. Don't you wish you could do that and just not having it one day? Like, somebody say, hey, do you? Like, oh, not today. You know, and it's like, there's no breaking through. You know, and they, people, like, bless their heart. They try. Like, say, hey, Eli, like, how you doing? They're trying to, like, and he just, like, shuts down, like, even more. He's, like, not having it. But people have started to learn something about Eli, and that is that if you just bribe Eli a little bit, he'll start to, like, you win some favor that way. And so, People are, like, bringing him M&Ms and gum and all these things. And so he's like, oh, you know, like, he's now you've, like, won some uh, favor with him. This was actually, Amanda brought him something last week. This was him in the car on the way home. And she's like, he's loving it. He's loving it. And uh, Amanda has actually gone further with him. She used this as her in. But now he's, like, spent so much time with Amanda that he has this, like, relationship with Amanda, right? Like he has this uh, connection with, and he calls her Manna. He's like, Manna, 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 that's his buddy. And, uh, you know, Amanda went off to school this year, but she still uh, comes back on the weekends, and, and he, he really, like, loves her and cares for her. So 
I tell you all that to say that, and we know this to be true, right? You can buy favor, but love can't be bought. You can buy someone's favor, and in fact, you can even kind of initiate a relationship in that way with some good favor, but at the end of the day, our love can't be bought. And God's not trying to buy our love. God is pouring himself out generously to us, and we might gain some favor with God because of some great things God has done in our lives or for us, but at the end of the day, that can't be the basis for the relationship. Does that make sense? It can't be all about the stuff, because what happens when the stuff isn't there one day? Or what happens when God does something different than what we would hope for him to do in our life? Our relationship with God must be built on more than what he gives us. It must be built on who he is. John Mark Comer is a guy that I think is just a great, uh, great in the area of cultural commentary. And um, he has this uh, podcast that I listen to quite a bit. It's called This Cultural Moment. And he speaks a lot about following Jesus in the current cultural moment, which is really interesting to me. And one of the things that he talks about is we live in a cultural moment where we want the kingdom without the king. And what he means by that is we love all the things that God can provide, right? We, we love the things of the kingdom like love and healing and wholeness and peace. Like who wouldn't want those things? And we want a society like that and we want to, our relationships and our family to be like that. And individually we want the things that God offers us like that. But we don't want it with the authority of the king. We want the kingdom inheritance, but we often don't want the authority of the king. We don't primarily want The son, we just often want God's stuff. I mean, how many of our prayers begin with, God, give me, give me, give me? Open hands. I mean, when's the last time you just prayed, sat in the presence of God, and just allowed him to speak to you and had a dialogue back and forth? we got to get back to the place where there is nothing we want more than just the presence of the son. And then all the stuff that he gives us is just bonus. It's not about that. It's about the relationship. One of the things that Jesus says that's rather tough truth, especially if you read it in isolation and don't quite understand the context of it. Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And you're like, what do you do with that? Right? Because this seems so inconsistent with everything Jesus is talking about. And then all of a sudden he just drives like, you telling me I should hate my mother and, and, and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters? And even my own life, I should hate those? That just doesn't make any sense. What does that mean? And you think, as you read that, you think, I lo- I, those people on that list, I would do anything for. I would give my life for those people. I would go to any, I would do absolutely anything for them. And that's his very point. That we should love God so much with such great intensity, with such a burning hot fire, that all of those other relationships, that we love those people, we would do absolutely anything for those people. It looks like hate in comparison because we love God so much. So we must get to the place where our love for Jesus is so strong that by comparison our greatest loves would look like hate in comparison. Our love for God must be primary. And what you actually discover if you love God like that you're better equipped to love the people around. You're actually better at loving the people around you when you love Jesus like that. And so charge number two is you want God's stuff more than you want God's son. The last charge that he really lays on them here in this parable is um, that they don't, you don't produce what you profess. You don't actually produce what you profess. 
He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And he's really speaking to the nation of Israel that thought that they had exclusive rights on the kingdom. That, like it was just meant for them. But he's saying, no, it's actually going to be opened up to a whole other group of people that you guys often push out called the Gentiles. And they're going to get access to the kingdom because they're not just going to talk about it and profess it. They're actually going to produce the things of the kingdom. And so it's going to be taken from a group of people that professes it but doesn't produce it and instead given to a people that both professes and produces the things of God. And one of the, the constant indictments that Jesus had against the religious leaders was, and he used this word, one of his favorite um, words for them was hypocrite. And we use that, we, we, we know that word is not something you want to be called today, right? And it has a lot of loaded meaning for us today even, and sometimes it's misused, but what um, what this word originally came from is really this word that we see in the scripture that was based on the theater of the day. And so it was really based on actors of the day. And so what Jesus was saying is when he called them hypocrites, it was like he was saying, bravo, good job. This is a good, you're, you're doing good job as an actor. You're performing really well, but you're not fooling me. You're not fooling me. I know what's really inside your heart. I know who you truly are. And you can dress up all day long. You can be the best actor in the world. But Jesus is like, I'm not buying it because I know better. And if there was one thing that he despised, it was this kind of duplicity. In Matthew 28, 26 through 28, he's even more direct than he is in this story. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, you on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So what he was condemning was this appearance of righteousness that didn't match reality. And uh, I don't know how many of you guys have uh, go to like the Halloween haunt stuff. I know the Halloween haunt is back up. And I used to go to this stuff. I used to be like the place to go as like a teenager. And, um, you know, I, I used to think it was a good time. But now it's like, you know, all that like yelling and screaming. Like that's just like a typical Friday night for me. And I don't have to pay for it. So like that's just like, you know, we've got pure chaos every Friday night at our house. And uh, so, but it's fun because like I, I, like we'll go during the day with our kids and it'll be, um, like the, the pumpkin fest or whatever was like Charlie Brown pumpkin fest. But if you don't get out of there in time, like the monsters like start coming out. And like I'm telling, like th- I'm like like hiding my kids' eyes. Like, you know, don't look. You know, you'll be like in my bed for like two months. And uh, so don't do it. And um, I'm covering their eyes. But the thing that amazes me is like how like realistic these costumes have gotten. Like, I like, it's so believable, like, it fools me. I'm, like, fooled by this costume, and I'm, like, I know, like, in, in my heart of hearts that there's just some teenager that's trying to, like, make a little, like, extra money under that, you know, and I could take them. Like, I'm not, I'm not worried. But, like, when they got the mask on and everything, they got, like, the chains. I'm, like, I know that chainsaw doesn't really work, but I'm, like, creeped out by that. Like, that looks so, so real. And you get fooled by it. And I think sometimes we even fool ourselves a little bit with some of the costumes that we put on. I mean, it's become such commonplace, so natural for us just to put costumes on and off when we're in different settings that it's become second nature for us. And we for, we're so good at it. This looks so realistic. We can play that part so well. But Jesus calls out this kind of hypocrisy. He's saying, you got to produce what you actually profess, right? If you're going to talk about the things of God, are the things of God actually flowing out of your life? It doesn't matter how convincing the outward appearance might be, 
God sees past all of that. And if at the end of the day, he's the one that we're trying to honor, which he should be, then he's not buying any of the costumes that we are wearing in whatever setting we might find ourselves in. And so Jesus says the kingdom will be taken from those who simply profess the things of God and hand it to those who actually produce the fruit of kingdom life. The goodness that comes from God is actually producing our life. So I have a question. I think it's a question. It's one of those questions that hopefully you'll actually, as a follower of Jesus, camp out on a little bit and say, what does that look like for me? And it's just, what, how wide is the gap between your private and your public life? I mean, how wide is that gap? between public and private? How wide is that gap between the appearance that you project and reality of what's going on in your life? Between what's going on the inside and what's going on the outside? How wide is that gap? Because I think sometimes, and even as you hear me say this, don't hear me wrong, because I think sometimes we think that the opposite of hypocrisy is perfection. Like until I reach per- perfection, I will always just be a hypocrite. And it's some, in some ways, we're going to deal with hypocrisy uh, in our lives. But the opposite of hypocrisy, hypocrisy isn't perfection it's consistency it's that we are closing the gap between what we say and what we actually do what we say and who we actually are that that gap is diminishing and the only way that we can get to the place where we can close out those inconsistencies is we invite Jesus the cornerstone into the gaps in our life into the inconsistencies into the brokenness into and we allow him to draw these two things to center And so I just have to think about this, and as I was reading through this text, these are the questions that I was wrestling through this week, and that is, does my life and lips tell the same story? And then I started thinking, like, what if you got all the people that know me, like, in an interview setting, and, you know, like they would, like, if they're investigating a case, and they did interviews with all those people, and they said, okay, you tell me about Josh. So what, 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 what's your encounters been like with him? Who is he? Who would you say that he, And you ask all of those kind of probing questions of the people that are in your life. The question is, would all those people have a similar story about who you are? Or would one person, the person you hang out with on Friday night, have a different story than the people that you hang out with on Sunday morning? And the people in your workplace might have a totally different, because you're wearing different costumes in all of these different places. And so I have to ask that question. Will my kids tell the same story of who I am and, and that I project to others? Will my wife tell the same story? My brothers and sisters, the people who work out with me, the people that I spend uh, a weekend with. Will those people have the same story to tell? Am I consistent or am I sporting a range of costumes? And the way that we live consistent is to make Jesus our constant. Is Jesus a constant presence in our life? That's the only way that I can be consistent because I know, like the old hymn says, a prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. So the only way to stay linked to God is by making Jesus our constant in Colossians 1.27, it says, For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Here's the secret. You ready for the secret? Are you ready for the secret? Okay, good. Yeah, I wanted, I'm going to tell you a secret. It's a good secret. All right. The secret is this. Christ lives in you. Christ lives in you. That's the secret. That's how we move from hypocrisy to consistency. Because Christ lives in us if we'll let him, if we will allow him to have authority over our life. Christ lives in us. This gives you assurance of sharing in his glory. Sharing in the things of God. That's the secret. 
And when people ask you, what's the secret to your life? Like, how is it that you, you're just different? I don't know what it is, but you're authentic and you're true. And, you're, and, and they want to, like, compliment you to say, that's Jesus. That's Jesus in my, I don't know, because I, the guy that, that I knew before, the guy that I was before, he's not anything like that. And so that's just Jesus at work in my life. That's the secret is that Christ lives in me. And so we get to let people in on this secret as they see the kind of life that is different and changing and influencing and impacting those around us. Um, just in closing here, I'm just kind of losing my voice, I think. <clears throat> um, just in closing, I, this past week, uh, Jess and I, uh, Jess was kind of like scrolling through Facebook. I hate that I learned this way, but it was, she was scrolling through Facebook, and um, <clears throat> she had came across something, and just all of a sudden, like, she's just sitting there, and she's like, oh, no, and I'm like, oh, no, like, I never want to hear that, you know, like, what, what is it? And so she shares uh, that a family friend of ours had passed away uh, this week, and um, I was actually surprisingly, uh, truth is, in a lot of those moments, because, you know, we all experience those moments, um, a lot of times my reaction is just to kind of be numb to it, like, or just be like, oh, you know, that's really sad, like, I feel for their family or whatever. But it struck me in a way that was, like, surprising to me, especially because I haven't seen him uh, in a good amount of time and really spent any time with him. Uh, but I was really just, like, I mean, I felt it. I was, like, really moved by it. And uh, I dealt with it for, like, two days. And um, still kind of, as I think about it, like, I'm, but I, I really was just kind of wrestling around with the fact that, that our friend Ron Looney was, was gone. And uh, my parents had a, a lake house down at Lake Harrington. And um, Ron Looney was our next-door neighbor. And when I mean next-door neighbor, like, there's these condos. And he was, like, we shared a wall together. And so every time we came in and out, we're always seeing him, always having interactions with him. And, um you know, the thing that really I think struck me, the reason I feel like I was dealing with this uh, in a different kind of way is because, um, you know, people say you don't remember what people said as much as you, how they made you feel. I, I, it took me back to the place of, like, time with him and the way that made me feel. And, like, so I was, like, really saddened by the fact that, like, I know the way he made me feel. And, like, um, simply put, I, I just felt better every time I walked away from an exchange with him. And he was just a simple man, and we would talk fishing, we talked UK football, we would talk, he let me in on some tricks about the lake and how to catch, uh, you know, a good bass out of the lake, and, but some of those conversations would translate into talks of life and faith, um, a lot of those conversations were short, just in passing, uh, but many times we lingered much longer, and we spoke for a while, and the thing that I always, I never felt like he was in a rush, like he would have talked to me as long as I wanted to talk to him, and just, you know, pull up a chair right there on the porch that we kind of shared together, and uh, and just, just have a good conversation. And he never really wanted to talk about himself either. He always wanted to know what's going on with your family and how are you doing and, and all these kinds of things. And, you know, the truth is I was a college student, and every weekend I was, like, driving up there with a group of my buddies, and we were, like, hanging out at the lake house, you know, which a lot of older people in this complex, that's not the thing that most of them wanted, was a bunch of college students, like, coming in and hanging out, especially the guy that shares a wall with us. And uh, I feel like we were mostly respectful, but we certainly weren't quiet and uh, – he never, like, complained that I'm aware of. Like, he never was, like, passive-aggressive toward me or, like, any, like he should have been. And some of the other people I could tell, they're like, oh, here we go. Like, you know, like, I could tell that they weren't having it, that we were there all the time. But instead, he always received each of my friends with a generous smile and a firm handshake and wanted to know about their stories just the same way he wanted to know about mine. And, and when Jess and I started dating, he was always so eager to hear about us, how we were doing. And um, he welcomed her the same way that he welcomed me. After I graduated, my parents sold the lake condo. I really didn't keep up a whole lot. You know how it is. And um, I, I, Ron Looney, eventually he moved to uh, Florida. 
Um, and uh, he had this small window of my life that, that I remember. And in those brief years that our lives overlapped, I'm just saying he left a lasting mark on me. Um, and after a long battle with throat cancer, he went home to be with Jesus this past week. And um, as I was, like, sharing all these things with Jess, this is about how I missed him and how he just, like, I always just felt peaceful around him. And I always felt like he was just in his own presence. She was like, you know what's interesting? What really struck her was that as she read through all the comments online, it was a lot of the same stuff I was saying. And what that told me, I'm not surprised by it, is that Ron made a lot of people feel the same way that he made me feel. He took that same time with everybody that he encountered that he took with me. For Ron Looney, it wasn't just how he appeared. It, it was who he was. He was consistent. I love what his wife had to say uh, about him. She said, I never thought I'd find a man with so much strength and feeling, a man with such integrity and goodness in his heart. He was truly a rare and priceless work of art. I realized he might not have been as perfect as I saw him, yet in my eyes and in my heart, there was no one else on earth more genuine and precious than my perfect partner, my best friend, and the sweetest love anyone has ever known. I thank God for placing you in my life. I will cherish my memories for our life together. He was just consistent. And I believe he was consistent because to Ron, Christ was a constant in his life. We have many conversations about it. And I just got to hope that one day the same can be said for me. I would be grateful. Uh, I may not live perfectly, but I hope I can live consistently by keeping Christ as a constant. I pray that I can honor God in what people see and what they don't see. I have a long way to go, I'll admit, but if Christ is the cornerstone of my life, I have all that I need to produce the things of God in my life, not because of who I am, but because God sent his son to people undeserving, people like me, who reject God and push God away. He sent his son, not because we deserve it. So to address that first question that the Pharisees raised, who does this guy think that he is? I'll tell you who he is. He's the healer of the most deeply broken. He is the freedom for the prisoner. He is the savior of the most wretched sinner. He is the one who always has and always will be. He's the one that doesn't have a birthday. He is the one that was ridiculed and rejected but not deterred. He was the one who suffered yet remained unshaken. He is the one who swallowed up death in victory. He is the precious cornerstone. Who is he to you? Let's pray. God, thank you for being a constant and being accessible to us. And though, God, you knew how that story would unfold, you sent your son anyway. And though Jesus knew what he was signing up for, he became the ransom for each of us anyway. Though he knew he would be rejected, though he knew he would be cast out, though he knew he would be spit upon and mocked, came anyway and he gave his life for us God we just want to lift our hearts in gratitude we want to praise you for who you are we want to love you with greater intensity we want to come before you with greater humility and God we ask that as we do that God that you would allow us to be a consistent example of who Jesus is we know we won't be perfect this side of heaven, God, but would you allow us to be consistent in how we demonstrate who you are 
of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.